was heading north, kind of my custom from time to time to go get reacquainted with my wife. And as I was getting on the 410, traffic was pretty thick, but I saw a break. And I thought, I can just merge right into that place. thought I was all set. And so I put my blinker on. And the guy who was in the freeway lane there had the urge to press on his accelerator and close that gap up and left me no place to, to get in. And so I had a choice. Either hit the brake to avoid hitting him or speed up, get ahead of him. And then I thought I was pondering, okay, which one did Pastor Bill choose to do? And while this was going on, I was kind of shouting quietly to myself, You idiot! You fool! You immature driver! The problem was the text for this week was going through my mind because I've been kind of living with it. And it says there in our text in chapter 5 of Matthew, that, well, we're not supposed to call people stupid idiots or fools. And in fact, it says anyone who says you fool is in danger of hellfire. And I unfortunately think that includes pastors. So I guess I know where I'm going. Are you going to be there with me? And so I took a moment just to pray to my Lord. Very funny, God. Let's pray. God, as we seek you this morning, as we open your word this morning, change us. Change our attitudes, our thoughts. Change our hearts by the way we live our lives. Give us your grace. We pray this in your name. Amen. I hit the brakes. Chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I don't know about you, but that's a tough word. And actually, in this chapter 5, there's a whole series of these tough words. You have heard it said, but I say, and he lays it on a little thicker this week. For just a moment, I want you to look at the verse preceding our text, verse 20. And there, Jesus is speaking, and he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus says that my righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, I think, Yikes! The Pharisees were pretty darn good at that, following the rules. They did a good job of that. They faithfully and dutifully kept all 613 of those little rules they made up that built off the Ten Commandments. How in the world do I do that? I don't have time for that. 
I want you to just imagine for a moment. This text is not in your Bible, so don't look for it. But I'm going to insert a verse 20a. And it would go something like this. Jesus would be speaking, and he would say, Let me tell you what I mean by having a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. It would kind of work like this. And you'd say, well, how in the world am I going to do that? And Jesus would say, I'm so glad you asked. You've heard it said, the sixth commandment, that thou shalt not murder. The one that says that that's wrong. And anyone who does it will be subject to judgment. To which I would say, well, yeah, I know that one. And guess what? I haven't murdered anybody. I'm doing pretty good, aren't I, God? Which Jesus says, well, the Pharisees haven't murdered anybody yet either. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or his sister or his spouse or his child or his employer or employer, the list goes on and on, by the way, will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says, Raka, you idiot, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. And anybody who says, you fool, is in danger of the fires of hell. And you and I would respond, okay, okay, I get it. Ouch. The whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount is easier to understand if we insert that little imaginary verse in there. Why? Because it helps us to see what Jesus saw. Jesus saw human hearts. Jesus says, look at what I see. Let me help you understand what God really has in mind uh, for, about murder in verse 21, about anger in verse 22, about reconciliation in verses 23 and following, about adultery in verse 27, about divorce in verse 31, about oaths in verse 33, and about loving your enemies in verse 43 and following. Let me help you understand what God really has in mind about these commands and how people ought to live for the kind of community that God desired for us, what He created us to be for those that bear His name. Jesus is challenging you and I here to live in Christ. To fulfill life with His Spirit. You see, Jesus expects something different from those who are filled with His grace. Jesus wants us to rise to a new level in our day-to-day spiritual walk. Jesus wants us to plumb the depths of our relationship in Him. The depths of the God who created us to be. Jesus saw potential in each and every human to be a Christ follower. You see, the Pharisees thought they were doing pretty good. They took pride in their accomplishments, especially those concerning God's laws. They kind of flaunted it, showed it off out in public. But Jesus wants more from us than than that. And He gives us God's Holy Spirit to help us to help us live that kind of life. The Pharisees, well, they were kind of into outward appearances. Christ followers live from the inside out. 
the Pharisees, well, they're about pretense and religiosity and, and show. But Christ followers, on the other hand, live from a changed heart by God's grace. The Pharisees, it's about a religion, getting all the rules and regs just right. For Christ followers, it's a relationship. It's a transformed life. A verse I learned when I was 12 years old, a Sunday school teacher shared it with me when I was having some difficulties. It was God speaking to the prophet and uh, judge Samuel. And Samuel was about the task of trying to find the next king for the nation of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, God says this to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance nor the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For the Lord does not look at things as human beings look at them. People look at what? The outward appearance. But God Jesus says, let me give you another example. Let's go to commandment number 7. Commandment number 7. Verse 27 in our text this morning. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is going to give us another to verse 20a. He's giving us another example to look at. You see, the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he revealed the Seventh Commandment. Basically, a married person cannot have sex with anyone who is not their spouse. That's it. Period. Simple. That's what adultery is. And, of course, they had found some loopholes, as humans are, have the tendency to do. A husband, if he got tired of his wife, if she was no longer as pretty as she was 20 years ago, if she wasn't paying enough attention and providing his needs as he felt that she should be, all he had to do was to divorce her properly. And in those days, it was pretty easy to divorce. If you recall in the New Testament, the story, the Christmas story, it talks about Joseph considering the option of putting away Mary, his uh, spouse wife, uh, to put her away privately. It's these divorce laws that they had dreamed up. Basically, all the man had to do, and it was all about the man, all he had to do was say to his wife, with the presence of a, of a witness, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And then hand her a certificate, a legal document, and it was over. And the woman was on the street. God has something else in store for us. This guy wants to divorce the spoken to go down the street to the pretty woman who's down there that he'd been lusting after. To dump his wife properly, not breaking the rules. And he felt that he was rightfully faultless. Jesus, in verse 27 and following, kind of rocks their world. Because he points out that it's not just the end result, it's those steps leading to the end result that are a part of that sin. And that every man on that hillside, hearing the Sermon on the Mount, and every man and woman sitting here in this congregation, including this man behind the pulpit, kind of <clears throat> gasp. Because we realize that we're not a lot better. We realize in our lustful hearts that we too are at fault. Just looking lustfully at a woman, 
to stuff. We're doomed. That's not good news for us. Am I right? So let me share with you something out of the Greek language. Greek is often difficult to translate into another language because they, it's a very explicit, very specific language. And English is a very uh, kind of casual language. And in this particular passage here, basically the Greek would say, anyone who leers at a woman in order to lust. Okay, you catch that? In order to. Inserting those words uh, kind of all of a sudden makes it, oh, wow. And for some of us, we may be thinking of loopholes of our own. It makes, gives us a little wiggle room. It helps out a little. But Jesus isn't saying that any man who notices a woman walking by has already committed adultery. God is a great, great creator. He created everything. He created everyone. And God in His creation created one half of our species with beautiful and mysterious curves. And the other half of the species, He gave the special gift of noticing those beautiful and special curves. And that's kind of how it works. Now, women, you don't get this. You need to understand that guys are wired very differently. We have 10,000 more nerves behind our eyeballs than you do. Everything is kind of visual for us. But that's the way God made us. He made us unique and different, each and every one. And it's an essential step in God's process to draw a man and a woman together in a lifelong committed marriage relationship that is intimate, personal, sexual, sensual, delightful. That was God's intent of that special relationship. Now, some of you teens are maybe sitting out there going, oh, yuck, my parents never did it. Well, maybe three times, my brother, my sister, and me. Although I'm still banking on the stork. If God created women to be beautiful and men to admire that beauty, then it would be cruel for Jesus to say that doing so is sinful, right? Okay? So what is Jesus saying? Basically, he says, don't look when it leads to lust. Don't give yourself an opportunity to be open to the temptation of lust. And what he does say is don't look in order to lust. Don't undress her with your eyes. Don't be thinking about having sex with her. Don't be plotting and planning how you can be in proximity to her and thus closer to the temptation. You see, it's not the first look that's the sin and gets us into trouble. It's the second and third looks. And if obeying this command was difficult in Jesus' day, when basically women were dressed and walked around in what was basically a burlap potato sack covered head to foot, you can imagine how much more difficult it is today because today women dress not to conceal their bodies but to reveal their bodies and to draw attention to their, their assets. And that's what the one half of the species don't need any help with. See if you get my drift. Now, parents, especially dads, I'm going to focus a little bit on dads. Women, there's some applicable points here as well. What are we thinking when we allow our daughters to leave our home for school or for the school dance or for a date or to go to the swimming pool dressed 
in a way that is designed to make her the object of oversexed teenage boys' fantasies. What are we thinking? And Dad, what are you thinking when you don't teach your sons about respect and honoring and treasuring women? Now, I'm not recommending burlap sacks. Although in the foyer, following the service at the men's ministry desk, you can pick up for $5.99. All proceeds will go to fix the roof. If the raising of hemlines and the lowering of necklines isn't enough to make us choke on Jesus' teaching here, our culture has invented new ways for us to give in to lust, like cable TV and Internet, to name just a couple. Do you realize that pornography is a $100 billion a year industry? $100 billion a year. That amount exceeds the, the, <coughs> the revenue of Microsoft, of Amazon, of Google, of eBay. And this caused them to change pages with Yahoo and Netflix and Apple and Earthlink all combined. billion pornographic emails are sent out every single day. Statistically, one half of the men in this congregation this morning are struggling with pornography in a way that impairs their relationships with people they care about. 80% of teens by age 16 will have seen multiple scenes of hardcore porn on their computers. And surprise, one of the fastest growing audiences of online porn is among women. I always thought they were the better gender. But it looks like we all have sinful tendencies and drives and addictions. (coughs) 53% of women admit to looking at online pornography. Friends, this is a growing This is a destructive, this is a pandemic that is sweeping our world. And another statistic I found appalling, do you realize that Christians spend more money on pornography than they do tithing in the offering plate? And we wonder why we're not making the kind of progress we need in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Our culture turns a blind eye to pornography. It says, oh, it's the natural. It's doing the natural thing. You know, it's not harming anybody. It's a victimless crime. Or even those who feel that it might not be the best thing feel that it's inevitable. So, I mean, what the heck? Or we should just accept it. We should be tolerant. Our culture treats us as animals, which have no control over our sexual desires, drives, and passions. It is a demeaning, a demeaning treatment of humanity. I'm here to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, you are better than that. You are worth far more than that to God. You are more noble than that. And Jesus says and treats you as more noble. Jesus is saying, don't give in to the distortions of your, your God-given passions. Battle our culture. 
Verse 29, it says, If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus here uses one of his favorite rhetorical devices called hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? Hyperbole is an over-the-top statement that is not meant to be taken literally, but it is meant to be taken very seriously. So, for instance, when our literalist friends out in the lobby following the service grab a cup of coffee, go over to the men's ministry booth for eye gouging, that's hyperbole. Don't expect you to do it. You can sign up for the breakfast on May 18th. And you might be saying to yourself, because Jesus is not saying, okay, every time you lust, go over and poke your eye out. You'd only have two shots at this. You would be saying, hey, Sam, can you lend me an eyeball? I've run out. I'm saying that you might really want to consider that second time. You see, that's not Jesus' point. But Jesus is saying that this is deadly serious. That you must take drastic steps to avoid the sin, the entrapment of our culture. You see, lust is addictive. It leads to increasing appetite. It never satisfies. It's almost always about instant gratification. You want to feel good now. Did you know that materialism and lust are the two presenting features, the two hallmarks of Western culture? And do you know that these two are also the reason why hundreds of thousands of Muslims hate us Americans, us Westerners? And why they discount our Christian faith? Because they say and point out that we don't even follow our prophet's teachings? So if we don't gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands, what do we do? What drastic steps will we take to deal with our addictions? And lust is just an illustration. I think, first of all, that we must address the supply side of lust. It's very curious to me that recovering alcoholics don't hang out in bars. I think those addicted to lust must stop hanging out at the places where that's accessible and available. So here's a thought for you. Get the best, the very best filter that money can buy and install it. You know, I know a lot of Christian homes that have bought the filters but have not installed them. Install that filter on your cable TV and install that filter on your computer. Men, if your habit is out of control, give the password to your wife. Wives, if your habits are out of control, give the password to your husband. Move your computer out of private spaces. Secrecy is one of the worst things you can do for a lust problem. And parents, I would recommend that you don't have a computer or TV in your children's rooms. It's too tempting. Too much time alone. And you may need to scale back your cable packets and get rid of those sex channels. I mean, HBO, we know what's on there. And so does your teenager. Battle secrecy because it allows lust to grow and to flourish. Men, get another guy. Women, get another gal to be an accountability partner, to hold you accountable, to ask you the tough questions. 
I'm a part of an accountability group of pastors. And we point fingers at each other and say, Brother, is this a problem for you? When's the last time? Because we are concerned to be pure in Christ. Get an accountability partner. Watch what you read. The old computer expression was garbage in, garbage out. Get help. If you're beyond yourself and you haven't found that these other steps have helped, get some help. There's professional help available. Christ's teaching here calls us to more than avoiding an affair and adultery. Jesus' words call us to a purity of heart that only His Holy Spirit can accomplish within us. And it needs to be a lifelong discipline. It starts one day at a time. It starts one evening at a time. It starts one business trip at a time. It starts one internet spam at a time. And if you take Christ's challenge seriously, your relationships will improve, especially with your mates. You will have a growing respect for the opposite gender and not want to use them visually or mentally again. And if you fail, and we sometimes will, you do as Scriptures prescribe. You confess it. And then you pray for God's help. And then you begin again. Through God who will give you strength. I am blessed by God's Word because in God's Word, Christ's commands begin with grace and they end with grace. It's not about us. It's about what He will do for us and through us. The question is, will you receive His grace this morning? We're going to take a few moments of worship and prayer. We're going to sing a song that's taken from Psalm 51. And we're going to sing a little bit of that, and then I've got some readers that have agreed to read our Scripture text. And they will share, and we will sing again, and we will do that and conclude with a time of prayer of confession. At this time, we invite the worship team to come. Matthew 5, 21-23. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rapha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell.
Jesus. You have heard it said in times of old, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust, you lust after her. You have already committed adultery with her in your heart. heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Continue to pray to our Lord. Oh God, we are so sorry. Hear our repentance for our wayward handling of life. We have squandered time. We've hoarded money. We've avoided challenges. We've gotten angry towards our brother or sister. We've lusted for someone who is not ours. We have not loved our enemies sometimes not even our friends. We've used others. 
We have borne waiting grievously, illness stubbornly, trials reluctantly, and responsibility half-heartedly. We have doubted your care, dear Lord. We mistrusted your providence. We've distorted your power. We've ignored your love and grace. We have neglected our discipleship. We've injured our relationships. We've sabotaged our fellowship and underrated your forgiveness. Forgive us now, Lord, we pray. Let us try again, sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading, committed to your will, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.